Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Bygone Tales, Episode 9. Tonight we have two tales, one from H.G. Wells and one from M.R. James. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the stories tonight. Our first story tonight is by Herbert George Wells, better known as H.G. Wells, born 1866, died 1946. He was an English writer, most known today for his science fiction, but was an extremely prolific writer in many genres, pretty much anything you can think of. He was also nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times. If you haven't read anything by H.G. Wells, you probably at least recognize the titles, some of the more well-known titles of his books, The Invisible Man, Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, War of the Worlds, The Time Machine. Well, let's get into the story. The Valley of Spiders by H.G. Wells Towards midday, the three pursuers came abruptly round a bend in the torrent bed upon the site of a very broad and spacious valley. The difficult and winding trench of pebbles along which they had tracked the fugitives for so long expanded to a broad slope, and with a common impulse the three men left the trail and rode to a little eminence set with olive-dun trees, and there halted, the two others, as became them, a little behind the man with the silver-studded bridle. For a space they scanned the great expanse below them with eager eyes. It spread remoter and remoter, with only a few clusters of sere thorn bushes here and there, and the dim suggestions of some now waterless ravine to break its desolation of yellow grass. Its purple distances melted at last into the bluish slopes of the further hills, hills, it might be, of a greener kind, and above them, invisibly supported, and seemingly, indeed, to hang in the blue, were the snow-clad summits of mountains that grew larger and bolder to the northwestward as the sides of the valley drew together. And westward the valley opened until a distant darkness under the sky told where the forests began. But the three men looked neither east nor west, but only steadfastly across the valley. The gaunt man with the scarred lip was the first to speak, Nowhere, he said, with a sigh of disappointment in his voice. But after all, they had a full day's start. They don't know we are after them, said the little man on the white horse. She would know, said the leader bitterly, as if speaking to himself. Even then, they can't go fast. They've got no beast but a mule, and all today the girl's foot has been bleeding. The man with the silver bridle flashed a quick intensity of rage on him. Do you think I haven't seen that? he snarled. It helps anyhow, whispered the little man to himself. The gaunt man with the scarred lip stared impassively. They can't be over the valley, he said, if we ride hard. He glanced at the white horse and paused. Curse all white horses, said the man with the silver bridle, and turned to scan the beast his curse included. The little man looked down between the melancholy ears of his steed. I did my best, he said. The two others stared again across the valley for a space. The gaunt man passed the back of his hand across the scarred lip. Come up, said the man who owned the silver bridle suddenly. The little man started and jerked his rein, and the horse hoofs of the three made a multitudinous faint pattering upon the withered grass 
as they turned back toward the trail. They rode cautiously down the long slope before them, and so came through a waste of prickly, twisted bushes and strange, dry shapes of thorny branches that grew amongst the rocks into the levels below. And there the trail grew faint, for the soil was scanty, and the only herbage was this scorched dead straw that lay upon the ground. Still, by hard scanning, by leaning beside the horses' necks, and pausing ever and again, even these white men could contrive to follow after their prey. There were trodden places, bent and broken blades of the coarse grass, and ever and again the sufficient intimation of a footmark. And once the leader saw a brown smear of blood where the half-caste girl may have trod. And at that, under his breath, he cursed her for a fool. The gaunt man checked his leader's tracking, and the little man on the white horse rode behind, a man lost in a dream. They rode one after another, the man with the silver bridle led the way, and they spoke never a word. After a time it came to the little man on the white horse that the world was very still. He started out of his dream. Besides the little noises of their horses and equipment, the whole great valley kept the brooding quiet of a painted scene. Before him went his master and his fellow, each intently leaning forward to the left, each impassively moving with the paces of his horse. Their shadows went before them. Still, noiseless, tapering attendants, and nearer, a crouched, cool shape was his own. He looked about him. What was it had gone? Then he remembered the reverberation from the banks of the gorge, and the perpetual accompaniment of shifting, jostling pebbles. And, moreover, there was no breeze. That was it. What a vast, still place it was, a monotonous afternoon slumber, and the sky open and blank except for a somber veil of haze that had gathered in the upper valley. He straightened his back, fretted with his bridle, puckered his lips to whistle, and simply sighed. He turned in his saddle for a time and stared at the throat of the mountain gorge out of which they had come. Blank! Blank slopes on either side, with never a sign of a decent beast or tree, much less a man. What a land it was! What a wilderness! He dropped again into his former pose. It filled him with a momentary pleasure to see a wry stick of purple-black flash out into the form of a snake and vanish amidst the brown. After all, the infernal valley was alive. And then, to rejoice him still more, came a little breath across his face, a whisper that came and went, the faintest inclination of a stiff, black-antlered bush upon a little crest, the first intimations of a possible breeze. Idly, he wetted his finger and held it up. He pulled up sharply to avoid a collision with the gaunt man who had stopped at fault upon the trail. Just at that guilty moment, he caught his master's eye looking towards him. For a moment, he forced an interest in the tracking. Then, as they rode on again, he studied his master's shadow and hat and shoulder, appearing and disappearing behind the gaunt man's nearer contours. They had ridden four days out of the very limits of the world into this desolate place, short of water, with nothing but a strip of dried meat under their saddles, over rocks and mountains, where surely none but these fugitives had ever been before. For that? 
All this was for a girl, a mere willful child, and the man had a whole city full of people to do his basest biddings. Girls, women, why in the name of passionate folly this one in particular, asked the little man, and scowled at the world and licked his parched lips with a blackened tongue. It was the way of the master, and that was all he knew, just because she sought to evade him. His eye caught a whole row of high-plumed cranes bending in unison, and then the tails of silk that hung before his neck flapped and fell. The breeze was growing stronger. Somehow it took the stiff stillness out of things, and that was well. "'Hello,' said the gaunt man. All three stopped abruptly. "'What?' asked the master. "'What?' "'Over there,' said the gaunt man, pointing up the valley. "'What?' something coming towards us. As he spoke, a yellow animal crested a rise and came bearing down upon them. It was a big, wild dog coming before the wind, tongue out at a steady pace, and running with such an intensity of purpose that he did not seem to see the horseman he approached. He ran with his nose up, following, it was plain, neither scent nor quarry. As he drew nearer, the little man felt for his sword. He's mad, said the gaunt rider. "'Shout!' said the little man, and shouted. The dog came on. Then, when the little man's blade was already out, it swerved aside and went panting by them and passed. The eyes of the little man followed its flight. "'There was no foam,' he said. For a space, the man with the silver-studded bridle stared up the valley. "'Oh, come on!' he cried at last. "'What does it matter?' and jerked his horse into movement again. The little man left the insoluble mystery of a dog that fled from nothing but the wind and lapsed into profound musings on human character. Come on, he whispered to himself. Why should it be given to one man to say, come on, with that stupendous violence of effect? Always, all his life, the man with the silver bridle has been saying that. If I said it, thought the little man, but people marveled when the master was disobeyed, even in the wildest things. This half-caste girl seemed to him, seemed to everyone, mad, blasphemous almost. The little man, by way of comparison, reflected on the gaunt rider with the scarred lip, as stalwart as his master, as brave and, indeed, perhaps braver. And yet for him, there was obedience, nothing but to give obedience, duly and stoutly. Certain sensations at the hands and knees called the little man back to more immediate things. He became aware of something. He rode up beside his gaunt fellow. Do you notice the horses? he said in an undertone. The gaunt face looked interrogation. They don't like this wind, said the little man, and dropped behind as the man with the silver bridle turned upon him. It's all right, said the gaunt-faced man. They rode on again for a space in silence. The foremost two rode downcast upon the trail. The hindmost man watched the haze that crept down the vastness of the valley, nearer and nearer, and noted how the wind grew in strength moment by moment. Far away on the left he saw a line of dark bulks, wild hog perhaps, galloping down the valley, but of that he said nothing, nor did he remark again upon the uneasiness of the horses. And then he saw first one, and then a second great white ball, 
a great shining white ball like a gigantic head of thistledown that drove before the wind athwart the path. These balls soared high into the air and dropped and rose again and caught for a moment and hurried on and passed. But at the sight of them, the restlessness of the horses increased. Then presently he saw that more of these drifting globes, and then soon very many more, were hurrying towards him down the valley. They became aware of a squealing. Athwart the path a huge boar rushed, turning his head but for one instant to glance at them, and then hurling on down the valley again. And at that all three stopped and sat in their saddles, staring into the thickening haze that was coming upon them. If it were not for this thistledown, began the leader. But now a big globe came drifting past within a score of yards of them. It was really not even a sphere at all, but a vast, soft, ragged, filmy thing, a sheet gathered by the corners, an aerial jellyfish, as it were, but rolling over and over as it advanced and trailing long, cobwebby threads and streamers that floated in its wake. It isn't thistledown, said the little man. I don't like this stuff, said the gaunt man, and they looked at one another. Curse it, cried the leader. The air's full of it up here. If it keeps up at this pace long, it will stop us altogether. An instinctive feeling, such as lines out of a herd of deer at the approach of some ambiguous thing, prompted them to turn their horses to the wind, ride forward for a few paces, and stare at the advancing multitude of floating masses. They came on before the wind with a sort of smooth swiftness, rising and falling noiselessly, sinking to earth, rebounding high, soaring, all with a perfect unanimity, with a still, deliberate assurance. Right and left of the horsemen, the pioneers of this strange army passed, at one that rolled along the ground, breaking shapelessly and trailing out reluctantly into long grappling ribbons and bands, all three horses began to shy and dance. The master was seized with a sudden, unreasonable impatience. He cursed the drifting globes roundly. Get on, he cried. Get on. What do these things matter? How can they matter? Back to the trail. He fell, swearing at his horse, and sawed the bit across its mouth. He swallowed aloud with rage. I will follow that trail, I tell you, he cried. Where is the trail? He gripped the bridle of his prancing horse and searched amidst the grass. A long and clinging thread fell across his face. A gray streamer dropped about his bridle arm. Some big, active thing with many legs ran down the back of his head. He looked up to discover one of these gray masses anchored, as it were, above him by these things and flapping out ends as a sail flaps when a boat comes about, but noiselessly. He had an impression of many eyes, of a dense crew of squat bodies, of long, many-jointed limbs hauling at their mooring ropes to bring the thing down upon him. For a space he stared up, reining in his prancing horse with the instinct born of years of horsemanship. Then the flat of a sword smote his back, and a blade flashed overhead and cut the drifting balloon of spiderweb free, and the whole mass lifted softly and drove clear and away. Spiders, cried the voice of the gaunt man. The things are full of big spiders. Look, my lord. The man with the silver bridle still followed the mass that drove away. Look, my lord. 
The master found himself staring down at a red, smashed thing on the ground that, in spite of partial obliteration, could still wriggle unavailing legs. Then, when the gaunt man pointed to another mass that bore down upon them, he drew his sword hastily. Up the valley, now it was like a fog bank torn to rags, he tried to grasp the situation. "'Ride for it!' the little man was shouting. "'Ride for it down the valley!' What happened then was like the confusion of a battle. The man with the silver bridle saw the little man go past him, slashing furiously at imaginary cobwebs, saw him cannon into the horse of the gaunt man and hurl it and its rider to the earth. His own horse went a dozen paces before he could rein it in. Then he looked up to avoid imaginary dangers, and then back again to see a horse rolling on the ground, the gaunt man standing and slashing over it at a rent and fluttering mass of gray that streamed and wrapped about them both, and thick and fast as thistle-down on wasteland on a windy day in July, the cobweb masses were coming on. The little man had dismounted, but he dared not release his horse. He was endeavoring to lug the struggling brute back with the strength of one arm, while with the other he slashed aimlessly. The tentacles of a second gray mass had entangled themselves with the struggle, and this second gray mass came to its moorings and slowly sank. The master set his teeth, gripped his bridle, lowered his head, and spurred his horse forward. The horse on the ground rolled over. There was blood and moving shapes upon the flank, and the gaunt man, suddenly leaving it, ran forward towards his master, perhaps ten paces. His legs were swathed and encumbered with gray. He made ineffectual movements with his sword. Gray streamers waved from him. There was a thin veil of gray across his face. With his left hand, he beat at something on his body, and suddenly he stumbled and fell. He struggled to rise and fell again, and suddenly, horribly, began to howl. Oh, oh, oh! The master could see the great spiders upon him and others upon the ground. As he strove to force his horse nearer to this gesticulating, screaming, gray object that struggled up and down, there came a clatter of hoofs, and the little man, in active mounting, swordless, balanced on his belly athwart the white horse, and clutching its mane, whirled past. And again, a clinging thread of gray gossamer swept across the master's face. All about him and over him, it seemed, this drifting, noiseless cobweb circled and drew nearer him. To the day of his death, he never knew just how the event of that moment happened. Did he, indeed, turn his horse, or did it really of its own accord stampede after its fellow? Suffice it that in another second he was galloping full tilt down the valley with his sword whirling furiously overhead, and all about him in the quickening breeze the spider's airships, their air bubbles and air sheets seemed to him to hurry in a conscious pursuit. Clatter, clatter, thud, thud, the man with the silver bridle rode, heedless of his direction, with his fearful face looking up now right, now left, and his sword arm ready to slash. And a few hundred yards ahead of him, with a tail of torn cobweb trailing behind him, rode the little man on the white horse, still but imperfectly in the saddle. The reeds bent before them, the wind blew fresh and strong. Over his shoulder the master could see the webs hurrying to overtake. 
He was so intent to escape the spider's webs that only as his horse gathered together for a leap did he realize the ravine ahead. And then he realized it only to misunderstand and interfere. He was leaning forward on his horse's neck and sat up and back all too late. But if in his excitement he had failed to leap, at any rate he had not forgotten how to fall. He was a horseman again in midair. He came off clear with a mere bruise upon his shoulder, and his horse rolled, kicking spasmodic legs, and lay still. But the master's sword drove its point into the hard soil and snapped clean across, as though chance refused him any longer as her knight, and the splintered end missed his face by an inch or so. He was on his feet in a moment breathlessly scanning the on-rushing spiderwebs. For a moment, he was minded to run, then thought of the ravine and turned back. He ran aside once to dodge one drifting terror, and then he was swiftly clambering down the precipitous sides and out of the touch of the gale. There, under the lee of the dry torrent's steeper banks, he might crouch and watch these strange gray masses pass and pass in safety till the wind fell and it became possible to escape. And there, for a long time, he crouched, watching the strange, gray, ragged masses trail their streamers across his narrowed sky. Once a stray spider fell into the ravine close beside him, a full foot it measured from leg to leg, and its body was half a man's hand. And after he had watched its monstrous alacrity of search and escape for a little while, and tempted it to bite his broken sword, he lifted up his iron-heeled boot and smashed it into a pulp. He swore as he did so, and for a time sought up and down for another. Then, presently, when he was sure these spider swarms could not drop into the ravine, he found a place where he could sit down, and sat and fell into a deep thought, and began, after his manner, to gnaw his knuckles and bite his nails. And from this he was moved by the coming of the man with the white horse. He heard him long before he saw him, as a clattering of hooves, stumbling footsteps, and a reassuring voice. Then the little man appeared, a rueful figure, still with a tail of white cobweb trailing behind him. They approached each other without speaking, without a salutation. The little man was fatigued and shamed to the pitch of hopeless bitterness, and came to a stop at last, face to face with his seated master. The later winced a little under his dependent's eye. Well, he said at last, with no pretense of authority, you left him. My horse bolted. I know, so did mine. He laughed at his master mirthlessly. I say my horse bolted, said the man who once had a silver-studded bridle. Cowards, both, said the little man. The other gnawed his knuckle through some meditative moments with his eye on his inferior. Don't call me a coward, he said at length. You are a coward, like myself. A coward, possibly. There is a limit beyond which every man must fear. That I have learnt at last, but not like yourself. That is where the difference comes in. I never could have dreamt you would have left him. He saved your life two minutes before. Why are you our lord? The master gnawed his knuckles again, and his countenance was dark. No man calls me a coward, he said. No, a broken sword is better than none. 
One spavied white horse cannot be expected to carry two men a four days journey. I hate white horses, but this time it cannot be helped. You begin to understand me? I perceive that you are minded on the strength of what you have seen in fancy to taint my reputation. It is men of your sort who unmake kings, beside which I never liked you. My lord, said the little man. No, said the master. No! He stood up sharply as the little man moved. For a minute, perhaps, they faced one another. Overhead, the spider's balls went driving. There was a quick movement among the pebbles, a running of feet, a cry of despair, a gasp, and a blow. Towards nightfall, the wind fell. The sun set in a calm serenity, and the man who had once possessed the silver bridle came at last very cautiously and by an easy slope out of the ravine again. But now he led the white horse that once belonged to the little man. He would have gone back to his horse to get his silver-mounted bridle again, but he feared night and a quickening breeze might still find him in the valley, and besides, he disliked greatly to think he might discover his horse all swathed in cobwebs and perhaps unpleasantly eaten. And as he thought of those cobwebs and of all the dangers he had been through, and the manner in which he had been preserved that day, his hand sought a little reliquary that hung about his neck, and he clasped it for a moment with heartfelt gratitude. As he did so, his eyes went across the valley. I was hot with passion, he said, and now she has met her reward. They also, no doubt. And behold, far away out of the wooded slopes across the valley, but in the clearness of the sunset, distinct and unmistakable, he saw a little spire of smoke. At that, his expression of serene resignation changed to an amazed anger. Smoke? He turned the head of the white horse about and hesitated. As he did so, a little rustle of air went through the grass about him. Far away upon some reed swayed a tattered sheet of gray. He looked at the cobwebs. He looked at the smoke. Perhaps, after all, it is not them, he said at last. But he knew better. After he had stared at the smoke for some time, he mounted the white horse. As he rode, he picked his way amidst stranded masses of web. For some reason, there were many dead spiders on the ground, and those that lived feasted guiltily on their fellows. At the sound of his horse's hoofs, they fled. Their time had passed. From the ground, without either a wind to carry them or a winding sheet ready, these things, for all their poison, could do him little evil. He flicked with his belt at those he fancied came too near. Once, where a number ran together over a bare place, he was minded to dismount and trample them with his boots. But this impulse he overcame. Ever and again he turned in his saddle and looked back at the smoke. Spiders, he muttered over and over again. Spiders. Well, well, the next time I must spin a web. Well, that story was published in 1903. It's not a well-known H.G. Wells story today, though it has appeared in many anthologies, most notably The Country of the Blind, released in 1911.
Well, the author of our next story was Montague Rhodes James, M.R. James, born 1862, died 1936. He was an English author, medievalist scholar, and provost of King's College, Cambridge, 1905 to 1918, and Eton College, 1918 to 1936. He's most known today for his ghost stories, and in fact, he is known as the originator of the antiquarian ghost story. Uh, if you've heard, if you've listened to the previous episodes, you may remember his uh, his earlier offering. I believe it was in episode four, uh, Lost Hearts, that also appeared in the same in in the same collection that this that this story appeared in. Well, enjoy. The Ash Tree by M.R. James Everyone who has traveled over eastern England knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded. The rather dank little buildings, usually in the Italian style, surrounded with parks of some eighty to a hundred acres. For me, they have always had a very strong attraction, with the gray paling of split oak, the noble trees, the mirrors with their reed beds, and the line of distant woods. Then I like the pillared portico, perhaps stuck on to a red-brick Queen Anne house, which has been faced with stucco to bring it into line with the Grecian taste of the end of the 18th century. The hall inside, going up to the roof, which hall ought always be provided with a gallery and a small organ. I like the library, too, where you may find anything from a Psalter of the 13th century to a Shakespeare quarto. I like the pictures, of course, and perhaps, most of all, I like fancying what life in such a house was when it was first built, and in the piping times of landlord's prosperity. And, not least, now, when, if money is not so plentiful, taste is more varied and life quite as interesting. I wish to have one of these houses and enough money to keep it together and entertain my friends in it modestly. But this is a digression. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house as I have tried to describe. It is Castringham Hall in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story, but the essential features I have sketched are still there. Italian portico, square block of white house, older inside than out, park with fringe of woods and mirror, and one feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree growing within half a dozen yards of the wall, and almost, or quite touching, the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place, and since the moat was filled in and the Elizabethan dwelling-house built. At any rate, it had well-nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year, the district in which the hall is situated was the scene of a number of witch-trials. It will be long, I think, before we arrive at a just estimate of the amount of solid reason if there was any, which lay at the root of the universal fear of witches in old times. 
whether the persons accused of this offense really did imagine that they were possessed of unusual power of any kind, or whether they had the will, at least, if not the power, of doing mischief to their neighbors, or whether all the confessions, of which there were so many, were extorted by the cruelty of the witch-finders. These are questions which are not, I fancy, yet solved, and the present narrative gives me pause. I cannot altogether sweep it away as mere invention. The reader must judge for himself. Castringham contributed a victim to the auto de fe. Miss Mothersole was her name, and she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. Efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. They did their best to testify to her character and showed considerable anxiety as to the verdict of the jury. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew Fell. He deposed to having watched her on three different occasions from his window at the full of the moon gathering sprigs from the ash tree near my house. She had climbed into the branches, clad only in her shift, and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife. And as she did so, she seemed to be talking to herself. On each occasion, Sir Matthew had done his best to capture the woman, but she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise he had made, and all he could see when he got down to the garden was a hare running across the path in the direction of the village. On the third night he had been at pains to follow at his best speed and had gone straight to Miss Mothersole's house, but he had had to wait a quarter of an hour battering at her door, and then she had come out very cross and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed, and he had no good explanation to offer of his visit. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Miss Mothersole was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial with five or six more unhappy creatures at Barry St. Edmunds. Sir Matthew Fell, then deputy sheriff, was present at the execution. It was a damp, drizzly March morning when the cart made its way up the rough grass hill outside Northgate, where the gallows stood. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery, but Miss Mothersole was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Her poisonous rage, as a reporter of the time puts it, did so work upon the bystanders, yea, even upon the hangman, that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the living aspect of a mad devil. Yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law. Only she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and venomous an aspect that, as one of them afterwards assured me, the mere thought of it preyed inwardly upon his mind for six months after. However, all that she is reported to have said were the seemingly meaningless words, There will be guests at the hall, 
which she repeated more than once in an undertone. Sir Matthew Fell was not unimpressed by the bearing of the woman. He had some talk upon the matter with the vicar of his parish, with whom he traveled home after the Assize business was over. His evidence at the trial had not been very willingly given. He was not specially infected with the witch-finding mania, but he declared, then and afterwards, that he could not give any other account of the matter than that he had given. And he could not possibly have been mistaken as to what he saw. The whole transaction had been repugnant to him, for he was a man who liked to be on pleasant terms with those about him, but he saw a duty to be done in his business, and he had done it. That seems to have been the gist of his sentiments, and the vicar applauded it, as any reasonable man might have done. A few weeks after, when the moon of May was at the full, vicar and squire met again in the park and walked to the hall together. Lady Fell was with her mother, who was dangerously ill, and Sir Matthew was alone at home. So the vicar, Mr. Crome, was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. Sir Matthew was not very good company this evening. The talk ran chiefly on family and parish matters, and, as luck would have it, Sir Matthew made a memorandum in writing of certain wishes or intentions of his regarding his estates, which afterwards proved exceedingly useful. When Mr. Crome thought of starting for home, about half-past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a preliminary turn on the graveled walk at the back of the house. The only incident that struck Mr. Crome was this. They were in sight of the ash tree, which I described as growing near the windows of the building, when Sir Matthew stopped and said, What is it that runs up and down the stem of the ash? It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now. The vicar looked and saw the moving creature, but he could make nothing of its color in the moonlight. The sharp outline, however, seen for an instant, was imprinted on his brain, and he could have sworn, he said, though it sounded foolish, that, squirrel or not, it had more than four legs. Still, not much was to be made of the momentary vision, and the two men parted. They may have met since then, but it was not for a score of years. Next day, Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven, nor yet at eight. Hereupon, the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. I need not prolong the description of their anxious listenings and renewed batterings on the panels. The door was opened at last from the outside, and they found their master dead and black. So much you have guessed. That there were any marks of violence did not at the moment appear, but the window was open. One of the men went to fetch the parson, and then, by his directions, rode on to give notice to the coroner. Mr. Crome himself went as quick as he might to the hall, and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. He has left some notes among his papers which show how genuine a respect and sorrow was felt for Sir Matthew, and there is also this passage which I transcribe for the sake of the light it throws upon the course of events and also upon the common beliefs of the time. 
There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber, but the casement stood open, as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel of about a pint measure, and tonight had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Barry, a Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterward declared upon his oath, before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbors of poison. The body was very much disordered as it laid in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what, as yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful design in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder, was this, that the woman which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing it, being both sad persons and very well respected in their mournful professions, came to me in great pain and distress, both of mind and body, saying, what was indeed confirmed upon the first view, that they had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with their naked hands than they were sensible of a more than ordinary violent smart and aching in their palms, which, with their whole forearms in no long time, swelled so immoderately, the pain still continuing that, as afterwards proved, during many weeks they were forced to lay by the exercise of their calling, and yet no mark seen upon the skin. Upon hearing this I sent for the physician, who was still in the house, and was made as careful a proof as we were able by the help of a small magnifying lens of crystal of the condition of the skin on this part of the body, but could not detect with the instrument we had any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks, which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced. Remembering that ring of Pope Borgia, with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. So much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse, as to what I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of valuable therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size, in which my friend, punctual as in matters of less moment, so in this more weighty one, used nightly and upon his first rising to read a set portion, and I, taking it up, not without a tear duly paid to him, which from the study of this poor adumbration was now passed to the contemplation of its great original, it came to my thoughts, as at such moments of helplessness we are prone to catch at any the least glimmer that makes promise of light, to make trial of that old, and by many accounted, superstitious practice of drawing the sorts, of which a principal instance in the case of his late sacred majesty the blessed martyr King Charles, and my lord Falkland, was now much talked of. 
I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me, yet as the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be searched out, I set down the results in the case it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence than my own. I made then three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first these words from Luke 13, 7, cut it down. In the second, Isaiah 13, 20, it shall never be inhabited. And upon the third experiment, Job 39, 30, her young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crome's papers. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth, and his funeral sermon, preached by Mr. Crome on the following Sunday, has been printed under the title of The Unsearchable Way, or England's Danger and the Malicious Dealings of Antichrist. It being the vicar's view, as well as that most commonly held in the neighborhood, that the squire was a victim of the recrudescence of the popish plot. His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates, and so ends the first act of the Castringham tragedy. It is to be mentioned, though, the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died, nor, indeed, was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735, and I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase slightly as time went on. Those who are interested in the details will find a statistical account in a letter to the Gentleman's Magazine of 1772, which draws the facts from the baronet's own papers. He put an end to it at last by a very simple expedient, that of shutting up all his beasts in sheds at night and keeping no sheep in his park. For he had noticed that nothing was ever attacked that spent the night indoors. After that, the disorder confined itself to wild birds and beasts of chase. But as we have no good account of the symptoms, and as all night watching was quite unproductive of any clue, I do not dwell on what the Suffolk farmers called the Castringham sickness. The second Sir Matthew died in 1735, as I said, and was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. So large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Miss Mother Soul, the position of which was accurately known thanks to a note on a plan of the church and yard, both made by Mr. Crome. A certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, who was still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed, and the feeling of surprise, and indeed disquiet, was very strong when it was found that, though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside it of a body, bones, or dust. Indeed, it is a curious phenomenon, 
For, at the time of her burying, no such things were dreamt of as resurrection men, and it is difficult to conceive any rational motive for stealing a body otherwise than for uses of the dissecting room. The incident revived for a time all the stories of witch trials and of the exploits of the witches, dormant for forty years. And Sir Richard's orders that the coffin should be burnt were thought by a good many to be rather foolhardy, though they were duly carried out. Sir Richard was a pestilent innovator, it is certain. Before his time, the hall had been a fine block of the mellowest red brick, but Sir Richard had traveled in Italy and become infected with the Italian taste, and, having more money than his predecessors, he determined to leave an Italian palace where he had found an English house. So Stucco and Ashler masked the brick, some indifferent Roman marbles were planted about in the entrance hall and gardens, a reproduction of the Sibyl's Temple at Tivoli was erected on the opposite bank of the mere, and Castringham took on an entirely new, and, I must say, a less engaging aspect. But it was much admired and served as a model to a good many of the neighboring gentry in after years. One morning, it was 1754, Sir Richard woke after a night of discomfort. It had been windy, and his chimney had smoked persistently, and yet it was so cold that he must keep up a fire. Also, something had so rattled about the window that no man could get a moment's peace. Further, there was the prospect of several guests of position arriving in the course of the day, who would expect sport of some kind, and the inroads of the distemper, which continued among his game, had been lately so serious that he was afraid for his reputation as a game preserver. But what really touched him most nearly was the other matter of his sleepless night. He could certainly not sleep in that room again. That was the chief subject of his meditations at breakfast, and after it he began a systematic examination of the rooms to see which would suit his notions best. It was long before he found one. This had a window with an eastern aspect, and that with a northern. This door the servants would be always passing, and he did not like the bedstead in that. No, he must have a room with a western lookout so that the sun could not wake him early, and it must be out of the way of the business of the house. The housekeeper was at the end of her resources. Well, Sir Richard, she said, you know that there is but one room like that in the house. Which may it be, said Sir Richard. That is Sir Matthew's, the west chamber. Well, put me in there. For there I'll lie tonight, said the master. Which way is it? Here, to be sure. And he hurried off. Oh, Sir Richard, but no one has slept there these forty years. The air has hardly been changed since Sir Matthew died there. Thus she spoke and rushed after him. Come, open the door, Miss Chittick. I'll see the chamber at least. So it was opened, and indeed the smell was very close and earthy. Sir Richard crossed to the window, and impatiently, as was his wont, threw the shutters back and flung open the casement, for this end of the house was one which the alterations had barely touched. 
grown up as it was with the great ash tree and being otherwise concealed from view. Air it, Miss Chittick, all today, and move my bed furniture in in the afternoon. Put the Bishop of Kilmore in my old room. Pray, Sir Richard, said a new voice, breaking in on the speech, might I have the favor of a moment's interview? Sir Richard turned round and saw a man in black in the doorway, who bowed. I must ask your indulgence for this intrusion, Sir Richard. You will, perhaps, hardly remember me. My name is William Crome, and my grandfather was vicar in your grandfather's time. Well, sir, said Sir Richard, the name of Crome is always a passport to Castringham. I am glad to renew a friendship of two generations standing. In what can I serve you? For your hour of calling, and, if I do not mistake you, your bearing, shows you to be in some haste. That is no more than the truth, sir. I am riding from Norwich to Bury St. Edmunds with what haste I can make, and I have called in on my way to leave you with some papers which we have just come upon in looking over what my grandfather left at his death. It is thought you may find some matters of family interest in them. You are very obliging, Mr. Crome, and, if you will be so good as to follow me to the parlor and drink a glass of wine, we will take a first look at these same papers tonight. And you, Miss Chittick, as I said, will be about airing the chamber. Yes, it is here my grandfather died. Yes, the tree perhaps does make the place a little dampish. No, I do not wish to listen to any more. Make no difficulties, I beg. You have your orders. Go. Will you follow me, sir? They went to the study. The packet which young Mr. Crome had brought, he was just then become a fellow of Clear Hall in Cambridge, I may say, and subsequently brought out a respectable edition of Pollyannus, contained among other things the notes which the old vicar had made upon the occasion of Sir Matthew Fell's death, and for the first time Sir Richard was confronted with the enigmatical sorts biblique which you have heard. They amused him a good deal. Well, he said, my grandfather's Bible gave one prudent piece of advice. Cut it down. If that stands for the ash tree, he may rest assured I shall not neglect it. Such a nest of catars and agues was never seen. The parlor contained the family books, which, pending the arrival of a collection which Sir Richard had made in Italy, and the building of a proper room to receive them, were not many in number. Sir Richard looked up from the paper to the bookcase. I wonder, says he, whether the old prophet is there yet. I fancy I see him. Crossing the room, he took out a dumpy Bible, which, sure enough, bore on the flyleaf the inscription, To Matthew Fell from his loving godmother, Anne Aldous, 2 September 1659. It would be no bad plan to test him again, Mr. Crome. I will wager we get a couple of names in the Chronicles, hmm? What have we here? Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Well, well, your grandfather would have made a fine omen of that, hey? No more prophets for me. They are all in a tale. And now, Mr. Crome, I am infinitely obliged to you for your packet. You will, I fear, be impatient to get on. Pray, allow me another glass." So, with offers of hospitality, which were genuinely meant, for Sir Richard thought well of the young man's address and manner, they parted. 
In the afternoon came the guests, the Bishop of Kilmore, Lady Mary Hervey, Sir William Kentfield, etc. Dinner at five, wine, cards, supper, and dispersal to bed. Next morning, Sir Richard is disinclined to take his gun with the rest. He talks with the Bishop of Kilmore. This prelate, unlike a good many of the Irish bishops of his day, had visited his see, and, indeed, resided there, for some considerable time. This morning, as the two were walking along the terrace, and talking over the alterations and improvements in the house, the bishop said, pointing to the window of the west room, "'You could never get one of my Irish flock to occupy that room, Sir Richard.' "'Why is that, my lord?' It is, in fact, my own. Well, our Irish peasantry will always have it that it brings the worst of luck to sleep near an ash tree, and you have a fine growth of ash not two yards from your chamber window. Perhaps, the bishop went on with a smile, it has given you a touch of its quality already, for you do not seem, if I may say it, so much the fresher for your night's rest as your friends would like to see you. That or something else, it is true, cost me my sleep from twelve to four, my lord. But the tree is to come down tomorrow, so I shall not hear much more from it. I applaud your determination. It can hardly be wholesome to have the air you breathe, strained, as it were, through all that leafage. Your lordship is right there, I think. But I had not my window open last night. It was rather the noise that went on, no doubt from the twigs sweeping the glass, that kept me open-eyed. I think that can hardly be, Sir Richard. Here, you will see from this point, none of those nearest branches can even touch your casement unless there were a gale, and there was none of that last night. They missed the panes by a foot. No, sir, true. What, then, will it be, I wonder, that scratched and rustled so? Ah, it covered the dust of my sill with lines and marks. At last they agreed that the rats must have come up through the ivy. That was the bishop's idea, and Sir Richard jumped at it. So the day passed quietly, and night came, and the party dispersed to their rooms, and wished Sir Richard a better night. And now we are in his bedroom, with the lights out and the squire in bed. The room is over the kitchen, and the night outside, still and warm, so the window stands open. There is very little light about the bedstead, but there is a strange movement there. It seems as if Sir Richard were moving his head rapidly to and fro with only the slightest possible sound. And now you would guess, so deceptive is the half-darkness, that he had several heads, round and brownish, which move back and forward, even as low as his chest. It is a horrible illusion. Is it nothing more? There, something drops off the bed with a soft plump, like a kitten, and is out of the window in a flash. Another, four, and after that, there is quiet again. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. As with Sir Matthew, so with Sir Richard, dead and black in his bed. A pale and silent party of guests and servants gathered around the window when the news was known, 
Italian poisoners, popish emissaries, infected air. All these and more guesses were hazarded, and the Bishop of Kilmore looked at the tree, in the fork of whose lower boughs a white tomcat was crouching, looking down the hollow which years had gnawed in the trunk. It was watching something inside the tree with great interest. Suddenly, it got up and craned over the hole. Then a bit of the edge on which it stood gave way, and it went slithering in. Everyone looked up at the noise of the fall. It was known to most of us that a cat can cry. But few of us have heard, I hope, such a yell as came out of the trunk of the great ash. Two or three screams there were. The witnesses were not sure which. And then a slight and muffled noise of some commotion or struggling was all that came. But Lady Mary Hervey fainted outright, and the housekeeper stopped her ears and fled till she fell on the terrace. The Bishop of Kilmore and Sir William Kentfield stayed, yet even they were daunted, though it was only at the cry of a cat. And Sir William swallowed once or twice before he could say, there is something more than we know of in that tree, my lord. I am for an instant search. And this was agreed upon. A ladder was brought, and one of the gardeners went up, and looking down the hollow could detect nothing but a few dim indications of something moving. They got a lantern and let it down by a rope. We must get to the bottom of this, my life upon it, my lord. But the secret of these terrible deaths is there. Up went the gardener again with the lantern, and let it down the hole cautiously. They saw the yellow light upon his face as he bent over, and saw his face struck with an incredulous terror and loathing before he cried out in a dreadful voice and fell back from the ladder, where happily he was caught by two of the men, letting the lantern fall inside the tree. He was in a dead faint and it was some time before any word could be got from him. By then they had something else to look at. The lantern must have broken at the bottom, and the light in it caught upon dry leaves and rubbish that lay there, for in a few minutes a dense smoke began to come up and then flame, and to be short the tree was in a blaze. The bystanders made a ring at some yard's distance, and Sir William and the bishop sent men to get what weapons and tools they could, for clearly whatever might be using the tree as its lair would be forced out by the fire. So it was. First at the fork they saw a round body covered with fire, the size of a man's head, appear very suddenly, then seemed to collapse and fall back. This five or six times, then a similar ball leapt into the air and fell on the grass, where after a moment it lay still. The bishop went as near as he dared to it and saw what but the remains of an enormous spider, venous and seared. And as the fire burned lower down, more terrible bodies like this began to break out from the trunk, and it was seen that these were covered with grayish hair. All that day the ash burned, and until it fell to pieces the men stood about it, and from time to time killed the brutes as they darted out. At last there was a long interval when none appeared, and they cautiously closed in and examined the roots of the tree. They found, says the Bishop of Kilmore, 
below it a rounded hollow place in the earth, wherein were two or three bodies of these creatures that had plainly been smothered by the smoke. And, what is to me more curious, at the side of this den, against the wall, was crouching the anatomy or skeleton of a human being, with the skin dried upon the bones, having some remains of black hair, which was pronounced by those that examined it to be undoubtedly the body of a woman, and clearly dead for a period of fifty years. <laughs> Well, that story was first published in 1904 and appeared in the collection Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. It was adapted for the screen in 1975 as part of the BBC's A Ghost Story for Christmas series. Well, I hope you enjoyed the stories tonight. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I hope you would uh, please feel free to stop by iTunes or Google Play Music or Stitcher and uh, please leave us a uh, please leave us a review. Uh, we desperately need some reviews. Uh, the more reviews we get, uh, the more ratings we get, the more notoriety we're going to receive, and the more likely we are to uh, to get more listeners. Um, as always, you can you can find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher, uh, as well as any place you find your uh, you find your podcasts. Uh, if you'd like to uh, reach out to us, you can contact us at our at our email address, bygonetales at gmail.com. Feel free to also come on by the Facebook page. It is Bygone Tales Podcast. Uh, we are nearing the end of our serialization of Lord Dunsany's The Gods of Pagana. Uh, after that, we will get back to... Uh, posting some fables by Ambrose Bierce. Uh, periodically I also put up a, uh, a quote that I come across while I'm reading that uh, I particularly enjoy. Or uh, any announcements about the, uh, the podcast can also be found there. Uh, we also can be found at our webpage. Uh, that is mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for the podcasts and you will find our, uh, our, our blog set up. Um, each episode has its own page. Uh, each page has, uh, has a section for comments, so please uh, drop by and uh, you know, leave, us a, leave us a comment. Uh, let us know how we're doing. Uh, as I have mentioned in some previous episodes, I want to put out a call for anybody who is interested in uh, getting their voice on the podcast. We are looking for narrators particularly people who are interested in reading poetry. Um, if that is something that you would be interested in, drop us a line at our email address, uh, bygonetales at gmail.com, and I will get back to you as soon as I can, and we will figure out a way to get you on the podcast. Well, thank you again for spending the evening with us, and until next time.
Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Well, as the holiday season approaches, sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. If you're interested in the game Magic the Gathering, they also have Magic the Gathering graded magic cards. They have all slabbed cards and rare BGS graded cards. Now, I'll admit, I don't know what that means, but they assure me if you're into Magic the Gathering, you will know what that means, and they have a great selection. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.